Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we'll be looking at verses 13 through 15 uh, this morning. So Peter's uh, letter to a bunch of churches scattered throughout modern day Turkey. And uh, they are going through various trials and he's giving them wisdom and guidance from the Lord in how to respond. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, I'll begin reading in verse 13, and I'll read down through verse 15, kind of stop there, there's more, but we'll pick it up, uh, Lord willing, next time. So starting in verse 13, and again, it's my privilege to read for you the inspired Word of God, so please listen with reverence and in faith. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence. And may the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Again, now Peter in this letter begins to uh, call us into really the main purpose of his book, and that is to address various forms of suffering that was going on by the church. Most of this has been in the shadows so far of the book. You've seen it crop up in verses here and there. But Peter is now going to emerge this theme of suffering as kind of the grand theme, the central theme of the letter. In effect, Peter wants to help his readers find the armor of God to give them help to give a godly response in the midst of suffering for righteousness. And though we hate to think of it this way, suffering is really an important part of the Christian life. It's an important part of our sanctification. It's a vital part of our becoming conformed to the image of Christ who went to the cross and bore the cross before He wore the crown. And as we are gradually conformed into His image, there's a measure of that that all of us will experience. So as we learn to carry our own cross in preparation for one day wearing the crown of glory with our Lord in heaven, we must understand that suffering in this life to some degree is inevitable. So how do we respond? How do we react to suffering when we must go through it? And Peter will begin to give us some of the answers in our passage. Let's begin, however, looking in verse 13 because he begins to almost say, don't worry about it. You know, you're not going to be troubled with it. He says in verse 13, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And this is a rhetorical question that really expects a strong negative answer. No one. If you prove zealous for doing what is good, you don't have to worry about anyone harming you. 
Well, obviously there are, there are, we have to kind of put that in the context of what Peter is saying because some of them already were suffering. Some of them already had a variety of different kinds of afflictions in the church. So what does he mean in verse 13? Well, I think in general, Peter is, uh, notice emphasizing in verse 13, if you prove zealous for what is good, and he has just given us verses 8 through 12, which emphasizes the importance of being harmonious and kind-hearted and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil, but giving a blessing instead, guarding our tongue, seeking peace. So all of that is kind of in the context. And if we prove zealous for that, in general, no one's going to harm you. So I think what Peter is addressing here in verse 13 is a general acknowledgement and appreciation for God's common grace. That in general speaking, that if we live good and righteous lives and we're zealous for good, blessing people, then generally people are not going to try to harm us. And again, that's a, that's a tribute to God's common grace, even in our own culture. Paul has given basically this same idea in Romans 13 when he talked about the government. And he said rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior. They're not a cause of fear for good behavior. Generally based on God's common grace. But rather for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For as a minister of God to you for good... But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it's a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So even Paul shared this idea that government, in general, based on God's common grace, will not harm those who do good. And again, this is just kind of a general tipping of the hat to God's common grace. Proverbs 16.7, Proverbs says, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So in general, that is true. When we're living a, a peaceful life, when we're trying to be a peacemaker, like Jesus teaches us in the Beatitudes, even our enemies will be at peace with us. They will not harm us. But of course, there are exceptions. And Peter is not saying that believers who are zealous for good can escape all harm and all rejection in the world because, again, some of them were already suffering. Some of them were already being afflicted. He's already mentioned that. So in general, we know that from the Scriptures, we can appreciate God's common grace. And we've had a lot of that in America so that the church has not been greatly persecuted yet within our own country. And we can thank God for that. That's a blessing of God's common grace. But notice in verse 14, then he says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness. So now he's acknowledging the possibility and the reality that we can suffer for righteousness. It's interesting in this particular verse, 
Peter uses a very rare conditional sentence that employs an optative mood verb, which is suggests on the surface that this is not highly probable, but it could be that you will suffer for righteousness. At this point in time, when Peter wrote this letter, we many think he wrote it around 60, early 60s, before the great fire that happened in Rome in, in 64 AD, where Nero blamed the church. So we're, we're in this phase when there's not a lot of imperial persecution for being a Christian. That really hasn't developed much yet. Most of the suffering that these churches are experiencing are more localized out in Turkey. So Peter is acknowledging that there is a possibility of more suffering to come. And apparently there was a growing shadow of that, though it really hasn't hit the dirt, if you will, yet. There hasn't been a lot of persecution. There will be more later in the future. But certainly some of them had already experienced persecution and suffering, and it was very real and present. But he's at least acknowledging here in verse 14 that if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, some of you are now, and there's a possibility of it coming more in the future, and as we know, it will come more in the future. But he's at least acknowledging that. Again, the reality is Christians are going to suffer in this world. Uh, Jesus made that clear in His own teachings to His disciples. John 16, verse 2, that they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. An hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think He's offering service to God. So Jesus forewarned His his disciples that, look, some of y'all are going to die for your faith. And then in verse 16, in the world, excuse me, verse 33 of chapter 16, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I've overcome the world. You're going to have tribulation. It's a part of being a believer in the world. So even though in America, as we draw application to our own day and age, we certainly have the freedom and the liberty at this point to try to mitigate any of these forms of suffering that may be developing uh, in our own form of government. Citizens are to have a voice. That's what being, have a Republican form of government, not the Republican Party, but the Republican form of government is where we the people elect those who represent us in Congress. We don't like what they're doing, we replace them. So we have a voice in doing that. We have a voice to petition our government. To work towards godly changes. And we certainly should be doing that. But what if we're not successful? We must be prepared. And that's kind of what Peter is telling his readers. Is that generally, if you're zealous for good, you don't have anything to worry about. But you can also suffer for righteousness. And some of y'all are, and more of you will. And in that case, what he's trying to say to them is be prepared. No one knows what the future holds, but we know who holds the future, right? But be prepared, because you do not know to the extent of what may occur. When he says uh, back in verse 14, suffer for righteousness, 
then he's referring to what they are doing in the name of Christ. They're trying to live a righteous life obedient to Scripture. They're trying to order their life and their mind and their thoughts and their activities according to God's Word. They're zealous for what is good according as God defines what is good. But that will not shield us from all of the hostility that comes from the world. Even a morally righteous life will be viewed as an irritation by those who hate our moral standards and and values. It's just the potential that we have of, of suffering for righteousness. Now that suffering can take on different forms. There can be bodily persecution where they literally come up and beat Christians or they throw them in jail or they kill them. That's certainly possible. And most persecutions of this nature come from two sources. They either come from government or they come from other religions. This kind of suffering mostly comes from government. From the Caesars back then, from local governments back then. Remember, Pilate was the one who ordered Christ to be crucified. He was the Roman governor. It was King Herod who ordered the Apostle James to be put to death. It's Nero who's on the throne now when Peter's writing this letter, who is the one who puts Paul and Peter to death. And other rulers will put most of the other apostles to death at some point in time. So Isaiah rightfully pronounces a woe when he says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. That can happen within government. Now, today, the greatest threat is from communism and Marxism. And as they move into government, they're the ones most likely that will bring the persecution and the physical harm to the church. They're doing it in other places around the world. And if they get more influence, they will do it here as well. A couple of years ago, there's a Wall Street Journal article, and here's the title of it. A hundred years of communism and a hundred million dead. And what the article pointed out is when you trace the influence of communism and Marxism in the world over the last hundred years, they've killed about a hundred million people. So government is one of the great threats to our religious liberties and to our freedoms as well. Because the stronger, the more totalitarian a government becomes, the more they want to take away our freedoms and take away our liberties and control us. That's why John Adams, one of our founding fathers, said this. He said, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. In other words, what he's saying is that the only way our Constitution is going to survive and thrive is for the people to be moral and religious. And when you take away that morality and take away that Christian influence, then our Constitution ain't going to work because they'll find all kinds of loopholes to twist it and distort it. And of course, that's what's being... Uh, taking place within our own country. What that emphasizes is the need for the gospel. 
Because our freedoms and liberties will only be preserved as the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed in the power of the Spirit and more people come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and order their lives and their moral values and, their, and everything else according to the Word of God. So we've got to be preaching the gospel because only the gospel can change hearts ultimately. And so we see that the greatest need for America today is for the preaching of the gospel by far to change hearts. So the shadow of Mordor is growing in America. And it may very well bring more of this type of suffering for righteousness. Besides government, of course, other religions, militant religions, Muslims, Hindus, just look around the world. I mean, they cause much suffering upon our brothers and sisters in Christ and other countries. So you have bodily suffering, bodily persecution, but there's other kinds as well that we can suffer for righteousness sake. And notice what is being said here in verse uh, 14. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness... You're blessed and do not fear their intimidation. So there's a lot of fear that just comes from the intimidations of living in the world that has rejected Christ and rejected the gospel. There could be financial suffering. You could lose a job. You may be denied privileges because of your Christian convictions at work. Your character could be belittled because you're a follower of Jesus. Or the presence of the world, the pressures of the world upon us to conform to worldly values and beliefs can cause internal turmoil. The suffering of of, of fear and anxiety and worry because of the outward pressure of the world to conform us to its image. Suffering for righteousness. may not be physical bodily, but it could be other ways as well. So what's the cure? Or at least what is Peter saying to, to give strength to the church to withstand the suffering for righteousness that some are already experiencing and more is on the way? What's interesting, the first thing he says in verse 14 is that even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. So the first thing he's emphasizing to them is that if you do suffer for Christ, if you do suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. So don't fear the suffering because it's actually a pathway to you receiving blessings from God. So don't fear it. It's interesting, this is, this is basically what the Lord Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount to His disciples. Look at what He says. Blessed. Blessed are you who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Peter probably had this verse in mind. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. 
For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus and Peter are emphasizing that we should not fear the suffering, but rather think in terms of that is a blessing. I am blessed if I suffer. I am blessed because it's a, it, 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 uh, as Christ says, your reward in heaven is great. I am blessed because I'm being identified with Jesus Christ. Because you're blessed. And the only way to get this kind of a blessing is not through being healthy and wealthy. It's through suffering for righteousness. That's the means of getting this, this blessing. And it only comes through this, this means. This particular blessing. Your reward in heaven is great. Whatever they take away from you now, whatever they steal from you now, whatever you suffer now, you will be rewarded and your reward will be great in heaven. And all of our sufferings in this life are short term. They all have an expiration date. They are all temporal. They will all end. But the blessing will be forever and ever and ever without end. And Peter, following the Lord, is saying, remember that. If you suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Now Peter, later on in chapter 4, is going to give another thought to this. In chapter 4, verse 14, he says, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So here's another blessing that comes. If you are reviled for being a Christian, if you are reviled for and suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And the blessing is that the Spirit of Christ is so alive within you and so manifesting your witness to the world that they persecute you. And you're blessed because it shows that the Spirit of Christ and of God is within you. To such a degree that other people know you're a Christian. They know you're a follower of Christ. They know that you put your faith in Him. That He's your Savior and Lord. And that's become so evident that that means you're blessed because that is the work of the Spirit of God in your life. And that is evidence that the Spirit is working within you to give you that bold witness that brings the hostile reaction against you, but it means you're blessed as evidence that Christ is within you. So Peter is encouraging them to remember, first of all, if you suffer for the sake of righteousness, don't forget that you're blessed. The second thing he says to them is, comes up in verse 14. And he says, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. And here Peter is actually quoting from Isaiah chapter 8. Verse 12 and 13, where Isaiah writes, You are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. So he quotes verse 12 here at the end of verse 14 in 1 Peter chapter 3. 
And then in verse 15, when he says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, he's really referring to verse 13. So he has this passage in mind. He's already quoted and alluded to Isaiah chapter 8 earlier in his letter. So he's been meditating on this passage. So basically he's saying here by quoting Isaiah, don't fear their intimidation. Don't be troubled by them. Why fear man whose persecutions only bring about God's blessings upon us? Don't be troubled by them. And the word trouble here means to be all shook up and agitated and, and unstable and tossed to and fro. It's used like of, of the sea in, in a storm where it's just being cast back and forth. Don't, don't, don't let that bring that kind of emotional response into your heart. Don't be troubled. Don't be tossed to and fro. Don't be agitated. Don't be shaken up on the inside where you're full of fears and worries and anxieties over what they might do to you. This kind of fear can certainly disturb the soul and prevent us from walking by faith. He said, don't do that. Rather, trust in the Lord. Regard Him as holy. The context of Isaiah 8 is uh, interesting. Because Isaiah is ministering to King Ahaz. One of the kings of Judah. And King Ahaz has just realized that the king of Israel in the north has conspired and formed an alliance with the Syrians to come in and invade Judah. He's just learned about that. So now, his own country is on the brink of being invaded by the northern, tribe, <clears throat> the northern nation of Israel who's made an alliance with a pagan Gentile nation, the Syrians, or Aram, as you may have it in your Bible. And so Isaiah comes to him and he says to him, don't fear them. Do not fear them. Don't panic so that you run off and make an alliance with the Assyrians thinking the Assyrians are going to protect you. Don't do that. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. He's able to deliver you. And then Isaiah tells him later on that eventually the the Assyrians, the Assyrians are going to come in and they're going to invade Judah. They will come in and invade you. And they will conquer and destroy and they'll come up to the very neck of Judah as a nation. But don't fear them. I'm in control, God says. Trust in me. And later on, when the Assyrians came in and wiped out Israel, and then they came down and they were going to wipe out Judah, and they had surrounded Jerusalem, that King Hezekiah, who was on the throne back then, cried out to God. And God sent Isaiah to come and give him a word of comfort. And he said, Hezekiah, even though they have you hemmed in all around Jerusalem, don't worry. They will not conquer the city. I am your God. Trust in me. And what the Lord did in one night, He sent one angel who killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. 
and they ran back home with their tail tucked between their legs. Because the Lord God Almighty is the only one we should fear. Don't fear man. Fear God. God is on the throne. Man can't do anything to you apart from the sovereign will of God. And He has a purpose in every suffering that His children go through. Don't fear man. Fear God Almighty. His sovereignty rules over all. The heart of the king is like streams of water in the hands of the Lord. He, he turns it whichever way He chooses. He's in control. If they invade, He's in control. The extent of their devastation, He determines it. He is sovereign over all things. Trust in God. Do not fear man. Or as Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now our problems may be different from Ahaz and from Hezekiah, but our God isn't different. It's the same God that we worship and He is worthy of our complete devotion. Now when he says don't fear their intimidation, you think Peter remembered when he failed in this situation big time in Caiaphas' courtyard and the little servant girl came up and said, hey, you're one of his disciples too, aren't you? And he said, no, I am not. Denied the Lord three times. Last time he did it swearing oaths. See, Peter felt the sting and the shame of fearing man when he shouldn't have. And the last time he denied the Lord in the courtyard of Caiaphas when he was around that charcoal fire, it was dark, there's enough light that it was shining upon the face of our Lord being interrogated by the chief priests. And Peter, after he denied the Lord the last time, he looked in Christ's direction. And Jesus was looking at him right in his eyes. And the guilt just flooded into Peter. And he ran out weeping because he realized that he was fearing man and he was not fearing God. We can all find ourselves in that situation. We can be like Peter. But Peter now with a better mind and the Spirit of God is reminding us, don't fear man. Don't fear their intimidations, their threats. Don't be troubled. Don't let that emotional earthquake occur on the inside. Have the peace of God. Trust in the Lord. For he who is of steadfast mind, he will keep in perfect peace because his mind is stayed upon the Lord. The next thing that Peter says to help these believers that were preparing for suffering for righteousness is in verse 15 when he says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. 
always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Now some translations leave the word Christ out. They have Lord God in it. I think the better manuscripts include the word, the name Christ. So that's the way I will go with this verse. We're to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. To sanctify basically has the idea to set apart as holy. To consecrate, to dedicate Christ as Lord. This is actually the same word that Jesus taught His disciples to pray when He said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. That's that old English term. Hallowed means to make it sacred. Set it apart as holy. Hallowed be Thy name. So we're to pray to our Father, Lord, may Your name be set apart as holy. May it be set apart as glorious and and worthy of worship in my heart, in my family's heart, in my church's heart, in the heart of the nation. Lord, may Your name be lifted high and loved and adored and worshipped. Set apart as holy. And this is the same word that's used here in verse 15. That we're to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. The concept of Lord, of course, is the one with power, the one with authority. This was actually used of the Caesars. Augustus Caesar, Herod the Great, also King Agrippa used this title as well. But obviously here, it's it's referring as a synonym for God. Not an earthly ruler, but the divine ruler, the infinite ruler, the master of the universe, the one who is Lord with all authority, all power, all dominion, and all glory. That is Lord in the ultimate sense. And if He's Lord, He is the one before whom we bow. If He's Lord, He is the one that we pledge our allegiance to. If He's the Lord, He's the one we desire to obey and honor in our lives. And so Peter is saying, who is your Lord? It's Jesus Christ. He is the Lord. Set Him apart as Lord. Now that's what saving faith in its essence does. We don't come to Jesus just as our Savior, but we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't just trust half of a half of Christ just being our Redeemer. No, He's our Lord and our Redeemer. He's our Savior, but He's our King. He's our Master. He's our Lord. He's the Lord of Lords, the highest Lord of all, the King of Kings, the King over all other earthly kings. And we are to set Him apart as holy within our hearts. We are to love Him and serve Him. See, this became a great issue with the early church. Because they were required to say, Caesar is Lord. Bow the knee to Caesar. He's your greatest authority. Christians couldn't do that. 
They could acknowledge Him as King. I mean, He was he was Caesar after all. But they worshipped as Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. Infinitely above any human ruler. And because of that, there was great persecution, suffering, and death that many experienced because they would not bow the knee and call Caesar Lord. We're to sanctify Christ. And the implication is only Christ as Lord in our hearts. Christ's supremacy in our life must be preeminent. And this is something we regularly need to check our hearts on, don't we? Is there anything else that I'm loving more, that I'm, that I'm wanting more than, than Christ? And we all struggle with this regularly, but that's why we continually confess our sins because we can't make ourselves Lord. We can't make anybody else Lord. It must be only Jesus Christ. And that requires us to continually humble ourselves before Him and acknowledge Him as Lord. Which Paul tells us that we can only do by the Holy Spirit. Notice Peter says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Because the heart is the control center of the inner man. It includes our emotions, our will, our mind, our desires. And it's out of the heart that we speak and act. So if we sanctify Christ as Lord within my within our hearts, then my words should reflect that. My actions should reflect that. That's what he's getting at. It's more than just a mental assent or saying it from the teeth outward. It comes from the heart. That's where the Lordship of Christ needs to be. And then he adds to that, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and with reverence. Always being ready, in season and out of season. Make a defense. And this word is where we get our English word apologetics from. It could refer to a courtroom scene where you're defending your faith in Jesus Christ before magistrates. Either a courtroom or it could be in a living room where you're doing it privately. You can make a defense publicly or privately. Both can be included. And a defense is where we give a reasonable explanation with supporting evidence. And every believer needs to always be ready to make a defense. Which means we need to know the Gospel well so that we can make a defense when anyone asks us. The very fact that people are asking, obviously they know that you're a Christian because they are asking you to give an account for your hope. And some may ask because they're genuinely interested. They see something different in your life. Something that's drawing them. Others may do it with more of a hostile intent. But in either case, it gives us an opportunity for witnessing. The hope that is in us, according to Peter, the hope is primarily the hope of glory. That great inheritance that he's already talked about in chapter 1. Our hope is, is the hope of glory being with Jesus Christ in heaven forever and ever. That is ultimately our hope. And we need to make a defense for that. And sometimes just our faith, just our witness at work 
is a powerful testimony that we have a hope that the unbelieving world does not have. That's why if you think of John Wesley when he was riding in that, he was in a ship on his way to America back in 1735 and they got in the middle of a, of a horrendous storm at sea and most of the people on the ship were crying out because they thought they were going to sink and die. But John Wesley, who interestingly was not converted at that point, saw a group of German Christians who were called Moravians on that ship. While everyone else was so stressed out and screaming and yelling out, they were over there singing. They were over there holding their church service. And Wesley saw that. The very testimony of their faith created within him a desire to know what gave them that hope. And later on, he went to one of the Moravians and he, and he asked him, were you not afraid in the middle of the storm? And he said, I thank God, no. And he said, well, were not your women and children afraid? And he replied mildly, no. Our women and children are not afraid to die. And then he shared with him his hope. And that created a thirst in Wesley that eventually led to his conversion later on it's one way that we can make a defense is just by living out the joy and the peace and the confidence that we have because we have a hope we have a hope that the world does not have we have a hope that we can share with people and it's when they come and ask us for that hope then we must be ready to give a defense of it we do that as we know the gospel as we can explain the Gospel to those who have no hope. And our world has no hope. I mean, what can atheists give? They can't give anything. They have no hope. Other religions don't have a hope. I remember reading the uh, Jewish Rabbi Kushner who wrote a book entitled When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And he wrote it because his young son came down with a disease called progeria, a rapid aging disease that stopped the growth of his son. He stopped gaining weight. His hair started falling out. And even as a child, he began to shrivel up and look like an old man. He eventually died when he was 14 years old. And the Jewish rabbi began to wrestle with that. How do you explain this if God is good and God is all-powerful? The theodicy debate. Well, his conclusion was, God must be all-good, but he, He's not all-powerful. He couldn't have stopped this. So his only hope was to try to find meaning himself in that disaster. And he concluded that the best we can do is to come to the point of trying to find some meaning on our own, but we have to learn to love and forgive God in spite of His limitations. That's his view of God. That's a hopeless view of God. But that's what other religions offer. That's what every unbeliever has. They have a hopeless view in their worldview. But we alone have the answer. We alone have hope because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross 
to die for our sins, to deliver us so we could be forgiven. Every sinner who repents and puts their faith in Christ can be forgiven of all their sins and imputed with the very righteousness of Christ so that when we die, we have that hope of glory. We alone have that hope. And we should be able to explain it to others. And Peter concludes when he says that we should be able to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Gentleness, not with arrogance, not being brash and rude and crude, but with a gentle heart, with humility, with meekness, which is not weakness. But this gentleness is an inner strength that enables an attitude of humility, courtesy, and gentleness towards others. The reverence is probably reverence toward God. We do it out of a fear of the Lord. So what has Peter said to his readers? He says, yeah, you're going to suffer for righteousness to one degree or another. But just don't forget that when you do suffer, you are blessed. Because you are heirs of glory. You have an incredible future to look forward to. So don't fear suffering for righteousness. Some of us will be called to do that in this room. But remember that your hope is in Christ. That you have a heavenly inheritance that no one can take from you. No one can steal. No one can cause it to come to an end. We have a hope and inheritance which is everlasting, eternal. And let your joy and confidence be in what Christ has done to earn that for us. That is our hope. He suffered for our sins. He bore our pain, our shame, that we might be forgiven and justified in Him. So don't fear the suffering when you suffer for righteousness. It's our calling. It's ordained by God. The degree is determined by God. The timing is determined by God. The length is determined by God. But don't fear it. It will bring blessings to your life. And it will give you an opportunity to be a witness of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That hope is secured for us because Jesus went to the cross And died for our sins. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's now our great privilege to draw our attention to the bread and the cup. As symbols of His body and soul that died upon the cross. To bore the full penalty of our sins. So that whoever puts their faith and trust in Christ alone can be forgiven. So it's a wonderful opportunity as we celebrate His death and His resurrection to be reminded of our hope that we have because of what He did for us. This Lord's Supper is for believers only. So if you're here today, whether you're a member or a guest, and you have put your faith in Christ alone for salvation, then we encourage us all to examine our hearts and confess any known sin and then to freely partake. If you have not put your faith in 
trust in Christ, then we ask You to let the elements pass You by and to reflect on the reality that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That we don't deserve anything good. We deserve God's wrath and judgment. And that there is a day of judgment coming. And you will stand before God and give an account for every sin. And we call upon you. We exhort you. We encourage you. We beseech you to turn from your sin. And put your faith and trust in Christ. And you can know the forgiveness of your sins and have the hope of glory that the world cannot give. Come to Christ and be saved. The bread that we break is unleavened bread because it best symbolizes the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. Because He had no sin, He could die as our substitute on the cross. And we break the bread as a reminder of the bodily tearing of His flesh. His bones were not broken, but His flesh was torn and His beating, His crucifixion. Because that was part of the price He had to pay to save us from our sins. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. There's no other Savior. No other Christ, however defined, can save you. He must be fully God so He could take away the infinite wrath of God. And He must be fully man so He could identify and take our place with a, a full and complete human nature except for sin. So He's the only Savior. We break His bread to remind us of the pain and the torment that His body endured to pay the price necessary for our forgiveness. Before the ushers come, let's give thanks for the bread, so let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, by nature, we are children of wrath. By nature, Lord, we are unrighteous and ungodly. But in Your great love for sinners like us, You sent Your Son, the only begotten Son of God, to come and die in our place on the cross, bearing our sin, suffering the punishment we deserve so that we might be saved and forgiven and redeemed forever by the sacrifice of the Son of God. Thank You, Lord, for sending Jesus to be our Savior and our Lord. And may we dedicate and consecrate our hearts afresh to Him as Lord and Savior this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.